restoring Illinois to greatness. This is Illinois Rising, presented by the Illinois Opportunity Project and hosted by AM560's Dan Proft. Dan, back with Pat on this edition of Rising. And uh, after Labor Day, Pat, uh, the uh, Jason Van Dyke murder trial begins with respect to the shooting and killing of Laquan McDonald. Of course, uh, this week, Van Dyke spoke for the first time since the shooting 40 years ago now to the Chicago Tribune. And again, you have to understand this is part of a legal strategy, clearly was, but laid out uh, his case in part talked about how he prays for the McDonald family every day, talked about how that that uh, night that he shot and killed Laquan McDonald's the darkest day of his life, talked about uh, that, that uh, he never discharged his weapon in his 12 years as a Chicago police officer prior to that night and that he thought he was a good cop and um, uh, you know that he believes that he did what he was trained to do the way he was trained to do it. Uh, jury selection, as I said, begins after Labor Day. Uh, and that's an interesting conversation in and of itself. The, uh, decision by the Van Dyke legal team to choose a jury trial over a bench trial. Uh, and, and so concerns of course, right now are being raised that if somehow Van Dyke is acquitted and first degree murder, so you're charging him with premeditation that, uh, the city will go up in flames. And you have people who perhaps know more about this case because they're closer to Van Dyke than we are, who've publicly said, including Chicago FOP president Kevin Graham, Brian Warner from Police Survivors Network, who they believe Van Dyke uh, will be acquitted and should be. It's a very interesting case, Dan, because it's a conflation of you know all the angst that revolves around the, the alleged racism of cops, particularly in big cities. The issue, the legal issue for me with respect to Van Dyke is the 16 shots, right? He shot him 16 times. And, and, and McDonald, he thought he had a knife. He didn't think he had a gun. So the, 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 the force seems far beyond, in my view, um, what would have been necessary to stop this guy, although I wasn't there. Uh, the first-degree murder charge, I think that's, that's a, that, convicting him on that would be, a, would be a mistake. That would be a miscarriage of justice. People have to understand the circumstance that these police are in, the, the nature of what's going on in that moment, the pressure they're under, and things of that nature. So the idea that he decided in that moment, I'm going to kill this uh, person, and I'm going to kill him because he's black. He's black, so I'm going to kill him, is just to me an absurdity. But did he use too much force, excessive force, things of that nature, secondary included offenses in the murder? I'm going to be curious to see how that plays out. What about uh, the choice of jury trial over bench trial? Now, the judge, there is a change of venue motion that has been uh, filed, and the judge has deferred judgment on that motion until after the jury is selected, presenting uh, the evidence that presented by the, the uh, defense for Van Dyke in this includes a survey that finds 85% of Cook County residents have already made up their mind on the case and Van Dyke's guilt or innocence. And so, you know, that be, suggesting that it's not possible for him to get a fair trial in Cook County. Well, it may not be possible for him to get a fair trial. It's an interesting motion. I don't necessarily disagree with it. I'm sure they're going to want to move to a less racially charged, racially diverse area. If they could move to a suburb that was, you know, uh, away from Chicago, I think they would. 
I would pick a jury trial over the, the over the the bench trial for the reason that it gives you so many more options. Right through voir dire, you can get jurors that can be sympathetic. Uh, you have the chance for a hung jury. You have chances for mistrials, and this can carry on and on and on. You get a judge who has the pressure of the world on him, and he's forced to make this decision, a political decision. I would never advise my client to be in that position. It's just too much risk that this judge will not want to uh, not take on the pressure. And also, you know, the uh, concerns that are being expressed about a, a, uh, a, not, a either way, I would say. I mean, when O.J. Simpson was acquitted, you had riots and celebration of his acquittal. But the idea that riots are going to break out, the city's going to burn down, other such pronouncements, uh, if Van Dyke were to be acquitted, where is the civilian and police authorities to say, look, when this starts, uh, we're going to just understand, regardless of the outcome, whether it's an outcome you want or an outcome you don't want, violence is not going to be an acceptable response in any case. And we will enforce the law and we're not going to tolerate a lawlessness, uh, period, full stop. So just be on notice. And they better, let me tell you something, that better happen, Dan, if Mayor Emanuel wants to be reelected, because this could turn into an unbelievable issue in the campaign heading into February uh, and then April if if there is civil unrest as a result of this trial, regardless of which way it goes. Yeah, and regard and, and maybe we'll find out even more, even if it is peaceful regard, regardless of the verdict, maybe we'll find out more about Tiny Dancer's role in this from the beginning, including his cover-up of it, allegedly, I think pretty compellingly, allegedly, uh, to push it off uh, past the last election. Dan, back with Pat on this edition of Illinois Rising. And uh, Pat, this week, a bunch of conservative legislators and candidates, sort of the independent uh, crowd that uh, my PAC is advertising on behalf of at present, focused on the issue of property taxes. They focused on another issue with the friend of the show, Ted Dabrowski, over there at wirepoints.com. And that was getting candidates to follow the lead of some incumbent legislators like Tom Morrison, Jeannie Ives, to refuse the state pension for legislators. Lead by example. You want to try and draw attention to the issue and the need for structural changes to how we do public sector pensions in this state. Well, then the first people who should uh, uh, be evidence of the change are the part-time legislators who vest for pensions after 10 years, uh, which happens nowhere in the private sector for a part-time employee. It's absurd. And you could add the health care benefits to that as well. Uh, State Representative Tom Morrison, Republican from Palatine, was one of those lawmakers, as I mentioned, who uh, helped orchestrate this press conference to uh, distinguish himself, his uh, colleagues who were incumbents, as well as these candidates from other candidates running, Republicans and Democrats, uh, on this issue. And uh, Tom joins us now. Tom, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks, Dan. Thanks, Pat. Can I correct you real quick? No. Yes, of course uh, under you can. Tier two, <laughs> uh, under Tier 2, the politicians actually vest after only eight years. Oh, it is still eight years. Oh, okay. All right. Well, no, it used to be four. It oh, that's right. Four. It went from four to eight, right. And then for employees, it went from eight to ten, didn't it? I think maybe, um, I think maybe yes, that's state right. employees. And yeah. So, yeah. And just to be clear, because I hear this on the campaign trail, no, you would not get your full salary uh, if you uh, got voted out or left office after four years. You have to still... Uh, serve 10, 16, 20 years before it would max out. But still, you would, well, you would right. at least become eligible 
uh, after eight years now. Right, and and that's that's obscene. That does not happen anywhere other than the state of Illinois for politicians. Um, so, right, but thank you for the correction. Vest after eight, it used to be four, so they doubled it because they're so serious. Um, so anyway, you're suggesting, and uh, others are, that... Uh, uh, you know, the uh, baby steps in the journey of a thousand miles aren't enough. Uh, we need to get to the end point of that journey post haste. And so, uh, wave off the pensions for state legislators. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll tell you my quick story. So I first ran in 2010 and I saw at that time an $83 billion unfunded liability as a nightmare. And so those are the good old, those owner, are the good old days, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Well, I, I could show you an article from 25 years ago from my high school newspaper where they said that uh, this is a pension crisis. And the student news, newspaper reporter interviewed the math teacher who said, hey, this works great if you're about to retire, but this should concern younger teachers in the future. Well, here we are in the future. Um, but there, anyway, By the way, so just as, was, a, as a quick aside, there's an op-ed in the early 70s from then-Lieutenant Governor Paul Simon in the, spring, in the Springfield State General Register, warning about the unfunded liabilities in the teacher's retirement system that were at the time a billion dollars. Now they're $50 yeah. billion. So that's a good segue. So as I was going door-to-door running my first time, I would knock on the door of, you know, the, uh, let's say a public school teacher, and they would say, well, what, you're going to be in office. What are you going to do about my pension? And my answer simply was, well, do you want the truth or do you want just to feel good? Because the truth is, we're in a very perilous situation, right? So sometimes I get a, a, an even response. Sometimes it was, it was hostile. Sometimes it was positive. I'd go to the next house and knock on the door, and someone would say, what are you going to do about my taxes? What are you going to do about the debt in the state of Illinois? And so over, you know, repeating that hundreds and thousands of times, it finally hit me. You know, the business I ran was a disaster restoration business. Uh, you know, think Mike Rowe and Dirty Jobs. We did that, cleaning up fires and floods and mold and crime scene and all kinds of stuff like that. And so when, what I learned from managing and operating that business is if you're asking the employees to do something, you better be willing to do it yourself. If it's a messy, dirty job, you just you, you lead by example, you do it. And I had the most incredibly loyal employees. We grew the business uh, because we just had an, an awesome team. And so mel- you know, melding those two experiences, I realized the public employees have been sold a bill of goods. There is some um, complicity in there because they've reelected and supported the politicians that, that allowed this to, to grow. But also the taxpayers have been abused as well because these liabilities for so long have been hidden. They've been papered over. They've been hidden by debt and bonds and these unfund, unfunded liabilities. And so I recognize that we need leaders who will go there and say, no more, um, we, we the, the lawmakers created this problem, and so you opt out, and then I can now go before any group of public employees and say, I'm not asking you to do anything that I was unwilling to do myself. In fact, I'm asking you to do less, because I'm just saying on a go-forward basis, we change this. And a lot of them are very receptive because I opted out. And that's an irrevocable decision, by the way. When I, when I opted out and signed that paperwork, the, the state... Um, uh, human services people, they were just stunned. They're like, are you sure about this? Do you, do you really want to opt out of this? Did they take a picture so of you? A, you might have been the first. You might have been the first person well, ever to do that. I was the first I was the first non-government employee to opt out. The person who did it before me was a retired high school principal, and that was 15 years before me. So I opted out, and they had to, I actually had to have my wife sign as a witness because it's irrevocable. 
And any lawmaker can opt out. And so I went to some of my other freshmen uh, that year, and I said, you can't be in this. If we're going to fix this system, you can't be part of it. And so we got three or four to opt out, and then every subsequent election, there have been anywhere from three to, to ten who've opted out. We're over 60 now. And so I think we're approaching that threshold where we can actually move the needle on this. How many and Democrats? it's happening at the local level, too. How many Democrats have opted out? I would say somewhere between five to ten. Of the 60? Correct. Tom, when you, when you go to your colleagues, either you know in your caucus or in the Democratic caucus, and say, hey, look, this is, we're going to solve this. We have to lead by example. This is how I've done it. We've got people to come along. And they resist. What's their argument for resisting? Oh, man. Uh, we, they, they know where I stand, so we really don't get in in-depth in conversations about it. They just uh, they say, look, I'm making a big sacrifice by, um, you know, mm-hmm. they will answer. They'll say, I'm making a big sacrifice by doing this. Because uh, otherwise yeah, they yeah, would yeah. be captains of interest, industry, Dan. You know, they would be the leaders of the free world if they weren't down there. I'll tell you what. You, <laughs> well, the other thing. Well, here's what I. The yeah, other thing, too, is just, hey, you know what? Don't. <laughs> Do, don't fall on this sword for me. I'll tell you what. Please. Please, with your sacrifices, yeah. stop helping me. Yeah. So here's what I say. I mean, I was not in the military service. My father was. My grandfather was. Uh, I just happened to grow up in a period where. We didn't have a draft. We don't have any major wars going on. But I'm looking at the debt for our state and our federal government, and I realize this is as serious as war. We need to treat it as such. And so this is my way of serving. And as long as the people here want me to be their representative, I'm happy to do it. But when my term is done, they shouldn't have to keep paying me until I die. Uh, and were you, uh, I assume you were encouraged then by uh, those that came together for this press conference of signed this pledge to refuse the legislative pension, which, as you point out, importantly, is irrevocable. So it can't just be like, a, oh, I'm going to, I mean, once you get elected, you do it and then it's done. It's not like you can walk it back. Um, all these uh, candidates for legislative office that uh, that you stood with that are picking up the example that you and others who are incumbents have set. Yeah, absolutely. We need more allies down in Springfield if we're going to move the needle on this. So I'm, I'm happy to have them on board. And like I said, it's happening at, some, at the local level, too. In, in Palatine, the trustees uh, have moved to get rid of um, the, the pension system for uh, the trustees, the mayor, and such. So um, there might only be one person left, maybe two, who's a part of that. But everybody, since I opted out, and again, these are apples to oranges comparisons, so, you know, because they have a different system than the legislative system. Mm-hmm. Um, but they recognized if if we need to push for uh, pension reform for police officers, firefighters, municipal workers, it just it's a huge conflict of interest when you have the trustees themselves in a pension plan. How is uh, your race going up in Palatine? Because uh, you're uh, facing an onslaught from a Madigan-backed and Madigan-financed candidate. Uh, like you haven't seen in a couple of cycles. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I have, uh, we all know, how, how do we get rid of Mike Madigan? That is the question. Mike Madigan is a state representative elevated to the position of speaker every two years by the Democratic state representatives. It's the first vote we take after we take the new oath of office. So to actually move things, uh, I spend a lot of my time trying to help other conservative candidates in districts around me. And so that's where I spent the last couple of election cycles. Once I knew that my, my race was secure, you know, I'd go and I'd help uh, fellow Republicans, fellow conservatives. And uh, so as, as a consequence, in my own district, there have been a lot of new people who have come in 
who maybe don't know me as well. Um, and so now I'm going door to door and talking to them and introducing myself, what I've been fighting for, pension reform, relief on our property taxes, um, not supporting any more uh, accrual of debt. And so that's what I'm about, and I'm, I'm making the case once again to, to my people. He is State Representative Tom Morrison, Republican from Palatine, running for re-election November 6th. Tom, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, guys. Bye. Dan and Pat back on this edition of Rising, and uh, this story comes to us from Orland Park, and it is um, a great tale about how difficult it is to change the kleptocratic culture in this state. So um, I, through my PAC, backed a candidate uh, in the uh, spring elections, municipal elections in, in uh, 15, Keith Pekow, who's the mayor of Orland Park now, took out a 24-year incumbent, Dan McLaughlin, who hadn't been challenged in 12 years. But uh, he doesn't have control of the board, and it's a manager form of government in Orland Park. Uh, And so there's all kinds of things to unwind because, of course, McLaughlin and his loyalists and his patronage hacks and the members of the village board that were lining up to follow McLaughlin after they quadrupled his salary so that he could triple his pension a lot of long-serving trustees who were going to be a kick line right behind him to do the same damn thing. And Pikau, who's doing a great job, here's somebody who has actually kept the promise, I know because I've been watching, kept the promise to be the reformer in Orland Park that could be a model for other local units of government, other communities. And he's getting uh, short-shrifted by these you know, endemic kleptocrats at every turn. Let me give you an example of this. This just recently. And to Keith's credit, he informs the public, hey, I don't care. Here's what's happening. Here's the truth. You make up your own minds. He sends out missives. He talks directly to the press. There's no fear here because he's not looking to, you know, leverage this for a pension or a six-figure salary. The village manager is 10 months into a three-year contract. The village board just voted six to one to give him a year extension on his contract. Is he like Nick Saban? I mean, Nick Saban doesn't get an extension <laughs> 10 months into a three-year deal. He, this village manager he hasn't even had a performance review under the initial under this three-year deal. 10 months in, they extended his contract by a year and increased his severance in the event that he is dismissed without cause from six months to nine months. I mean, Aaron Rodgers just signed a four-year, $134 million deal. I assume this is probably similar in Orland Park. They have, they have the same agent. Uh, I must. Um, but that was at the end of Aaron Rodgers' contract after he had performed. I've got a contract at AM560, and it's not up for a while yet. And they're not banging down my door to extend it with you know uh, more than a year left on it because they expect performance, and then after you fulfill the terms of the contract, then we'll talk about a new contract. Not in Orland Park, not in government. It is remarkable. Remarkable. But this is what we talk about when we talk about how the culture of kleptocracy, the the fix being in, at every level of government, you can look at Tiny Dancer and you can look at Cook County government. And you can look at what the state look locally. 
Look locally. Yeah, and you use the perfect word. It's culture, right? So so Pico can get in there and start doing his stuff, which he's done well for the last year plus since he's been in office. But he but 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 it, the culture is so endemic that it's going to require, just like Tom Morrison said in our prior segment, he was the first legislator not to take a pension. Now there's 60. So Pico is sort of the, the beachhead. He's out there saying, look, I'm going to put a stake in the ground, and I'm going to call these people out. Now what he needs... And, you know, people should out there and everywhere else should help him is he needs to start replacing the people on that board Absolutely. bit by bit. And when that happens, that's only when the culture changes. Otherwise, this is going to go on and on and on. And that's the spring 19 election when half the board is up. Um, by the way, the process. <laughs> you know who uh, made that an agenda item to increase uh, to extend the contract and increase the severance pay? The, the guy who got the contract. The village manager. <laughs> it was, hey, look, can I put this on the agenda? Is it okay if I get this? I, hey, look, there's a lot to go on. I'd like this to be first on the agenda tonight. Uh, and, oh, by the way, just to put an exclamation point on this, one of the trustees for the village of Orland Park who backed the guy Pico ran against, the 24-year incumbent hack, Democrat hack, is a guy named Jim Dodge, who's the Republican candidate for treasurer on former Governor Bruce Rauner's slate of uh, candidates who will lose in November. Oh, and he's going to lose. Jim's going to lose huge. Spectacularly. It's going to be incredible. Jim Dodge voted for this. He voted for the one-year extension, the uh, 33% increase in severance pay. Wait, he's running for state treasurer, Dan. Correct. Treasurer. And he, as a Republican... Keith Pigau is a conservative reformer. You literally, let me tell you something. You can't make this up. If you went to Hollywood and said, look, we're going to run a script about Keith Pigau and Jim Dodge and this contract, and he's running for they'd say, no, that's, that's, that, that's too far afield. Throw some aliens or a shark in there. I mean, so, so, so when, but th- this goes back to, you know, I, I know you, the, the example about how leadership builds consensus, and that's what Pigau's doing, but, but also the responsibility of the local of the residents in a particular community with respect to holding uh, people at the village board and the school board and the township board and the county board accountable for what they're doing. Dan, unless there's like a gas station going up next to their house, nobody's going to those meetings. That's just the reality. No one is engaged at that level at the, uh, unless it's a particular issue that affects their direct daily lives. That's the problem. That's the lack of civic engagement everywhere. Dan, back with Pat on this edition of Rising, and uh, Pat, m- we call it the uh, It Could Be Worse donor class, the bipartisan donor class uh, in Chicago mainly, in Illinois generally, that um, suffers from an affliction of low expectations for what's possible in the city, what's possible in the state. This is the best we can do, Rahm Emanuel. So we got to fold in with Tiny Dancer. This is the best we can do, Bruce Rauner. So we have to select Bruce Rauner over Jeannie Ives in the primary. Well, there's consequences to that, as we're seeing, say, for example, uh, being home to the worst-run state in the country, um, seeing people flee. Uh, Many of these in the quote-unquote donor class, certainly their social circles, but okay. We did a little analysis over at ChicagoCityWire.com and looked at the Venn diagram of former Governor Bruce Rauner 
and uh, hopefully former mayor Tiny Dancer. Uh, interesting. Because, you know, they have this like back and forth public spat now because attacking each other is useful at some level to each one of them, probably more so Tiny Dancer than Ronner. I'm sure they'll work it out all out at the wine club when this is all over. Maybe uh, when it's all over, Tiny Dancer can be like the Ronner's Valerie Jarrett. And when they move to the Amalfi Coast, they'll have a little room for Tiny Dancer. And I mean a little room, <laughs> physically. Like a closet. It used to be a closet. 323 campaign donors to Emmanuel have also given money to Bruce Rauner. And this is just public records, looking at Illinois State Board of Elections records, and uh, as I said, just bumping them up against one another. Uh, of course, it's the wealthiest families, the transactional, some of the, some of whom are transactional donors, some of whom suffer from the soft political bigotry of low expectations I was describing, including some of the wealthiest here, including people who have donated to my PAC, and I make no apologies for that. I'm glad they did. Donated to organizations that we're affiliated with. Uh, but I, I guess the question for, you know, the Ken Griffins and uh, uh, some of the others who I, I think lean right uh, as compared to uh, some of the other champagne socialists on this list of donors to both like Byron Trott, who was a bundler for Obama, who obviously left us, Eric Lefkowski from Groupon, obviously a leftist. Well, if he's not obviously a leftist, but he is. He's a Democrat. Um, is, you know, the bipartisan play, because this is the best we can do. And so I don't really need anything from any of the politicians. I'm not contributing money for access other than maybe from a social status point of view, uh, is that a, a sensible philanthropic strategy, political philanthropic strategy? How is that going when it's producing what Illinois has become and under whom it has become what it has? I think, I think in addition to everything you just said, and I'm also grateful to the support that we've received from some of these people, uh, is it's cultural like everything else. There is a, there's a notion amongst some of these folks that they're only going to support people who are in their circle, right? Their, their financial circle, their circle of social esteem, right? And someone from the western suburbs who's a house mom is not, does not fit that frame of reference for them, right? It's, it, we're the champions of the world. We're going to support and, and nominate other champions of the world because they're the only people who could successfully run a big city or a big state. And I think there's a bias there, sort of a, a self uh, uh, aggrandizement um, in terms of who they're supporting. Yeah, I mean, uh, but but you you understand that um, it just repels people, and it leaves, leaves uh, conservatives at home. When you see former George W. Bush Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson of Barrington, at least that's where he owns a place. I don't know if he's still technically a Barrington resident. He gave eighty grand to Ronner and seventy grand to Emmanuel. He likes Runner better by ten grand. Well, that, that's one read. <laughs> yeah, that's one read on it. Maybe I maybe that'll level off. It'll equal out. He had a rough two thousand and eight. Hank, Hank Paulson, by the way. Yeah, he did. <laughs> yeah, that was a rough time. Um, Sam Zell, uh, co-president of Sam Zell's uh, Equity Group Investments, I should say. David Hefland, Helfand, Helfand. Runner fifty-five. Emmanuel one thirty-five. Reinsdorf. Ronner 58, Emmanuel 77. 
Morningstar founder uh, Joseph Mansueto. Ronner 205, Emmanuel 200. And like you said, most of these people are insulated from the uh, result of politics. They're so wealthy that no matter what happens, they're, they're not, like you said, you're not looking for access or special favors. I mean, they're just insulated from all that. This and, is, and, and they don't do business with the government, right, for right. example. So it doesn't, I mean, it, you know, it matters in terms of, you know, regulatory uh, regimes and things like that. But, but, it, it, but they can't really be touched. It's cultural. It's just, it's a cultural thing of who they're associating with. The governor, the mayor, it's cultural. Well, it's, and so do they need to be challenged, though, to be the leaders in turning that culture around? Do people have to stop just, uh, you know, shining their shoes and challenge them a little bit to say, you're civic leaders, you're philanthropic leaders, respect what you've done to contribute to the arts, to contribute to causes that uh, are consistent with your philosophy. Maybe it's time to start doing that exclusively if you want to turn around the culture, because being you know, bipartisan in support of combine politics propagates this poisonous political culture that afflicts Illinois. And um, it's hard to make a case otherwise for them or anybody else. Yeah, and I think that, I think some of them do that. I think some of them do the, the hard work and look at it. I think there are others that you'll never get to. You'll never get to with that argument. Dan, back with Pat on this edition of Rising. And uh, after Labor Day, Pat, uh, the uh, Jason Van Dyke murder trial begins with respect to the shooting and killing of Laquan McDonald. Of course, uh, this week, Van Dyke spoke for the first time since the shooting 40 years ago now to the Chicago Tribune. And uh, again, you have to understand this is part of a legal strategy, clearly was, but laid out uh, his case in part talked about how he prays for the McDonald family every day, talked about how that, that uh, night that he shot and killed Laquan McDonald's the darkest day of his life, talked about uh, that, that uh, he never discharged his weapon in his 12 years as a Chicago police officer prior to that night and that he thought he was a good cop and um, uh, you know that he believes that he did what he was trained to do the way he was trained to do it. Uh, jury selection, as I said, begins after Labor Day. Uh, and that's an interesting conversation in and of itself. The, uh, decision by the Van Dyke legal team to choose a jury trial over a bench trial. Uh, and, and so concerns of course, right now are being raised that if somehow Van Dyke is acquitted and first degree murder, so you're charging him with premeditation that, uh, the city will go up in flames. And you have people who perhaps know more about this case because they're closer to Van Dyke than we are, who've publicly said, including Chicago FOP president Kevin Graham, Brian Warner from Police Survivors Network, who they believe Van Dyke uh, will be acquitted and should be. It's a very interesting case, Dan, because it's a conflation of you know all the angst that revolves around the, the alleged racism of cops, particularly in big cities. The issue, the legal issue for me with respect to Van Dyke is the 16 shots, right? He shot him 16 times. And, and, and McDonald, he thought he had a knife. He didn't think he had a gun. So the, 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 the force seems far beyond, in my view, um, what would have been necessary to stop this guy, although I wasn't there. Uh, the first-degree murder charge, I think that's, 
that's a that, convicting him on that would be a would be a mistake. That would be a miscarriage of justice. People have to understand the circumstance that these police are in, the the nature of what's going on in that moment, the pressure they're under, and things of that nature. So the idea that he decided in that moment, I'm going to kill this uh, person, and I'm going to kill him because he's black. He's black, so I'm going to kill him. Is just to me an absurdity. But did he use too much force, excessive force, things of that nature, secondary included offenses in the murder? I'm going to be curious to see how that plays out. What about uh, the choice of jury trial over bench trial? Now, the judge, there is a change of venue motion that has been uh, filed, and the judge has deferred judgment on that motion until after the jury is selected, presenting uh, the evidence that presented by the the uh, defense for Van Dyke and this includes a survey that finds 85% of Cook County residents have already made up their mind on the case and Van Dyke's guilt or innocence. And so, you know, that be suggesting that it's not possible for him to get a fair trial in Cook County. Well, it may not be possible for him to get a fair trial. It's an interesting motion. I don't necessarily disagree with it. I'm sure they're going to want to move to a less racially charged, racially diverse area. If they can move to a suburb that was, you know, uh, away from Chicago, I think they would. I would pick a jury trial over the, the over the the bench trial for the reason that it gives you so many more options. Right through voir dire, you can get jurors that can be sympathetic. Uh, you have the chance for a hung jury. You have chances for mistrials, and this can carry on and on and on. You get a judge who has the pressure of the world on him, and he's forced to make this decision, a political decision. I would never advise my client to be in that position. It's just too much risk that this judge will not want to. Uh, not take on the pressure. And also, you know, the uh, concerns that are being expressed about a, a, uh, a, a, either way, I would say, I mean, when OJ Simpson was acquitted, you had riots and celebration of his acquittal, but the idea that riots are going to break out, the city's going to burn down other such pronouncements. uh, If Van Dyke were to be acquitted, where's the civilian and police authorities to say, look, when this starts, uh, we're going to just understand, regardless of the outcome, whether it's an outcome you want or an outcome you don't want, violence is not going to be an acceptable response in any case, and we will enforce the law, and we're not going to tolerate a lawlessness, uh, period, full stop. So just be on notice. And they better, let me tell you something, that better happen, Dan, if Mayor Mayo wants to be reelected, because this could turn into an unbelievable issue in the campaign heading into February uh, and then April if, if there is civil unrest as a result of this trial, regardless of which way it goes. Yeah, and, regard, and, and maybe we'll find out even more, even if it is peaceful regard, regardless of the verdict, maybe we'll find out more about Tiny Dancer's role in this from the beginning, including his cover-up of it allegedly, I think pretty compellingly allegedly, uh, to push it off uh, past the last election.